Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Kevin. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me today. Yes, and I'm talking to Kevin McSpadden, currently Southeast Asia correspondent for E27. We have been corresponding a little bit over email, but I thought... I should get you on the show because I think there are a couple of very interesting things that are happening within the Southeast Asia ecosystem. I think this is the week where there is also the Kaufman Fellows Investor Conference and a couple of other conferences that are happening. But before we go into those parts, I want to get to know you better, Kevin. So how do you get started in journalism and eventually ended up doing tech reporting? All right. Yeah, no problem. So I like to tell people this. I don't even... No, I guess it's kind of true, but I think there are two types of people in tech journalism. There's the people who just love tech and have a penchant for writing, and so they take their love for tech and their natural skill for writing and do it that way. And then there's the people that love news and are taking that skill set and applying it to tech, and I am definitely the latter. I'm just a news nerd and have been for maybe 16, 17 years old. I started off in sports. I thought I was going to do sports journalism for the rest of my life. And then I got a nice little internship where I got to report on some events. I did a World Cup match between U.S. and Canada. That was, But I realized I didn't want to make that my job. I liked it too much. Sports is kind of my out. So I go home and I watch a basketball game when I need to decompress. And when you're covering something in depth, you sometimes want to break from it. So I didn't want that to be sports. Yeah, and so eventually I would had a romantic idea of working at a restaurant, which I did, and writing. And, <laughs> and I guess becoming a famous writer while I worked at a restaurant, like an old New York movie or something. That didn't happen because I was not that good at writing. So I had to go back to school, and I got into University of Hong Kong, which is a good school, and I graduated from the journalism program, and that's actually what brought me to Asia. In your background, you have moved from traditional, which is your time with Time and Reuters, to yep. online journalism, which is E27. What are the kind of interesting lessons you have learned so far? I'm relatively young in the field, so I kind of feel like I'm still cutting my teeth. I feel like uh, cutting my teeth is the best way to say it, I think. But in terms of what I learned, I mean, in general, media is finally starting to catch up with the internet. I don't know if it's translating to jobs or not. There's still some every now and then you hear about entire media companies firing thousand people. I think the move to online is happening. It maybe was five years too late, which is why media kind of struggled for a moment. People are accepting the internet as the future of media in general. What made you move from Hong Kong to Singapore to join E27 then? Honestly, E27 is why I moved to Singapore. Media is just a tough industry. At Reuters, we had about half of our office get fired just because corporates in New York were saving money. They were moving. I used to work for Breaking Views, the television show. Breaking Views is a financial opinion section of Reuters. We had a little TV show that I used to work for and I was a producer there and then they took our money and moved it to mobile which I mean honestly as a business journalist that was probably a smart decision but <laughs> but our office suffered. So I got an internship at time afterwards but that was definitely an internship. I learned a lot and had to look for another job. 
E27 came calling. And it, it's a good opportunity. It really is, actually. I get a lot of creative freedom and relatively high standards. So yeah. what's your coverage for E27, like mainly in Southeast Asia? So Singapore, mostly trying to keep up with Singapore. When I have contacts that I've made from other events in like Thailand or Malaysia, um, Hong Kong naturally for me just because I lived there for a few years, so I know people there. So they might send me some things. Um, we cover funding news and then I think the most fun part and I think what my editors want is us to dig around and find interesting companies and try and profile them. Usually that comes via a network of people that are like, hey, this company is doing something. Hey, this company is interesting. That's kind of the hard part sometimes is filtering through companies that are doing something interesting and cool that are going to take off and companies that might be around for three months and not be around anymore. Do you find it tough usually because in Asia, people don't declare their valuations as compared to, for example, in the US tech media? Yeah, I, I asked some people about their valuations once, not once, just recently, and uh, realized that that question was a little blunt and I might have crossed some boundaries. Yeah, valuations is difficult. That's a, that's a good point. We want to come to talk about the Southeast Asia startup ecosystems because I know that's a topic that you have been covering across the region. It's easier if we start off from Singapore and I think it's actually much more interesting to compare it to Hong Kong because both of them are actually financial hubs in their own right. I mean, people usually think of Singapore as the entry point to go into Southeast Asia and think of Hong Kong as the entry point to go to Greater China yeah. or even other parts of Northeast Asia, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. And the two cities like to uh, yes, to each other. That's right. The interesting thing is that there is an emergence of the Hong Kong startup ecosystem. I mean, my friend Casey Lau will definitely say that, you know, we are becoming a potential startup hub. And I thought that there was this interesting statistics that was cited by Grace Chung from Straits Times. And she was saying that in Singapore, the current startups form per day is about 2.5 startups and versus Hong Kong, which is one startup per day. And the ROI for investors is actually about 4.5 times in Singapore versus to 2.9 times in Hong Kong. And for Singapore, I think they have already reached 13 startups, value over US 100 million. And I think rumored, reputedly, there are three unicorns. I don't know about Hong Kong. I think presumably I know of at least one unicorn. So I guess Hong Kong started relatively late. What are your thoughts about this two startup ecosystem? Well, first off, I would say those statistics make sense just in terms of on the ground fields it's true hong kong's problem is it is access to greater china but it's also competing with greater china these days as china is not a closed off economic system whatsoever if you want to get to china you should just move to china so you used to go to china for a couple years test your product and then bump into china if you thought there was a market there but that's a waste of time these days. Shanghai, I mean, foreigners can open businesses in Shanghai if they want. The government's actively promoting a local startup scene. There's a lot more money in China. So if you really want to go to China, I don't know why you would go to Hong Kong first. You should just go to Shanghai or Guangzhou or Shenzhen. Real estate is a big issue in Hong Kong. It is almost impossible for a small startup company to afford office space there. So there's the Science Park and Cyberport. And those are aimed at startups. Texting, I guess you would compare it to Ayer Raja in Singapore. That's what Hong Kong is trying to build there. But they're really far away from the central part of the city, first of all, and they're far away from each other. It would take maybe an hour and a half to two hours if you wanted to go from Science Park to Cyberport. So if you don't have any money, there's Blueprint, there's some co-working spaces there, there's a maker space there. But 
it's expensive to start up and real estate is just, if you're 25 years old and you have a cool idea, you're going to have a hard time doing it anywhere besides your, your mom's apartment, honestly. In terms of the government infrastructure, I think Singapore government is much more hands-on. They put in a lot of funding structures. They put in a lot of infrastructure to support the startups where Hong Kong is totally different. Is, is it more private sector driven? I would say that's why Hong Kong actually they adopted the smart city approach, which I don't know if you saw that maybe a couple of weeks ago, which is a direct pull from the Singapore smart nation. But yes, that's accurate. Hong Kong, I don't know if it's a bad thing, right? So the reason people go to Hong Kong is it's unrestricted capitalism. I think it ranks the most capitalist place in the world almost every year. So if you believe in capitalism and you believe in private sector money and you believe that the cream rises to the top, you should go to Hong Kong. There's also the Hang Seng Index is there and there's a huge financial sector that Singapore has, obviously, but it's not at the same level that Hong Kong has. I think the news this month that when the government really wants to do something, they threw $258 million into the startup scene. It's just kind of a reminder how much money that city is has. I know it's going through some interesting political times at the moment, but it still is a very rich city. There's still a lot of money being made there and a lot of people go there to make money. But there's also a lot of things happening in Hong Kong from China. I mean, Alibaba yep. put up a fun to fund entrepreneurs in Hong Kong, I think it's somewhere in the range of 100 million, if, if I can recall the correct number. Yep. But it is also that recently Jack Ma bought SCMP, uh, South yes. China Morning Post. So there seems to be a lot of movement into Hong Kong from China. So within that also makes it pretty interesting in terms of a, a startup ecosystem. So I, I think the, the Alibaba investment is interesting. I wonder if they're going to just acquire those companies later on. But I guess if you're the founder and you know that going in, you don't really care, do you? The SCMP investment, I, I honestly think, is sort of uh, like Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. It's a, it's a billionaire who's buying a plaything, uh, in my opinion, which I think is fine. Jeff Bezos actually did an okay job with the Washington Post. I don't know if it's necessarily going to have much of an impact on the actual startup scene. I think Jack Ma just has billions of dollars and billions of billionaires buy sports teams and they buy newspapers and stuff like that. But I guess the difference is that you know, Jack Bezos is not going to interfere editorial in terms of yeah. freedom of speech, whereas Jack Ma has to un answer to the Chinese government. Yeah, that's true. One interesting thing that has been happening also in Hong Kong is also conferences. You have the RISE conference happening in Hong Kong. And they pull in a lot of major guests from Silicon Valley to Hong Kong, similarly from China to Hong Kong as well. E27 and a couple other media outlets have also organized similar conferences in Southeast Asia. But this is the kind of scale that's changing in terms that Hong Kong has accelerated. Do you see the startup ecosystem catch up? with these kind of conferences coming into Hong Kong? Uh, now that you're kind of pushing back on my point, I think you do have a good point. Just the, the, the sheer scale. I mean, there was a $3 billion funding round that just came out of China this this month, I think a week ago. You, you do get reminded of just how big the Chinese market is and it's how much money is involved. And Hong Kong is accessible, at least for conferences, for people that want to check it out. Um, a lot of the RISE people, uh, I, I went to RISE. Last July, right? I was there yeah. too, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, there were a lot of people there from not China, not Hong Kong, from India, from Thailand. I don't know if they would have gone to Shanghai or Beijing. Instead, Hong Kong is relatively accessible, easy to get to, um, and it does have access to the Chinese market. The president of Didi Kwaidi was the keynote speaker, so they obviously pulled some pretty big names there, too, which 
drew interest. I've been thinking about why Rice have not decided to do it in Singapore, given that they could have actually access into the Southeast Asia space, right? But they yep. choose to use Hong Kong. I think they're going to do it again this year, but I think earlier, probably in late May, early June period. Coming back to this question of startup ecosystem. So one interesting feature about Singapore, a lot of people don't know about this, is that Indian companies such as Flipkart are actually incorporated in Singapore as a HQ. And there is a recent uh, Startup India initiative from the Indian government from Modi that will change the dynamics. And I think they started giving things like, you know, three years, no tax for startups. I think it follows most startup ecosystems that have already done it and get capital gains tax. And it's quite interesting that given that a lot of India companies, because I know because they pass into Singapore to basically incorporate companies, and these are your unicorns, there are actually two tax havens. One is actually they usually pack their money through Mauritius to Singapore or Singapore Direct. What would be interesting now is would India actually overcome this exodus of India top tech companies incorporating in Singapore. It's almost like Singapore is a Delaware for Asia as a whole. I heard the exact same argument. I talked to two different Indian companies from Singapore in the last couple weeks, and I heard the exact same argument, which I like. I mean, I know there's some more complication and nuance, like bureaucratic nightmare, and even traffic and having relatives in Singapore contribute to the connection. But they were talking about branding. Singapore has a reputation for a clean city with firm rules. Whether or not locals agree with those statements doesn't really matter that's how the city is viewed from the outside it's clean it's firm and it has a strong government that if you mess around you're going to get in trouble so that actually can help especially if you're a company that deals with money transactions mobile transactions remittances because they know that if this company messes around and starts to get weird on me then the government's going to come in and hopefully be a strong enough deterrent so they're not going to take my investment and run away and never hear about them. India is not a bad place to do business, but it does have not as good of a reputation as Singapore. And one of the guys from our health mate who I interviewed for, for a story I wrote made a really good metaphor, which was if you have a product in China and a product in Germany, and it's the exact same product, heck, even if the Chinese product is better than the German product, you're going to buy the German product because of the Made in China brand, which used to be made in China used to mean crappy. You're going to buy the German version, even if they're the exact same. And I think his point was Singapore is the same thing. Like you're going to trust a company with the Singapore brand behind it. That's incorporated with Singapore that follows the rules of Singapore. And honestly, that's gone a long way to making Singapore the business hub that it's become is the branding of a good place to do business and also a safe place to do business in terms of the companies that you're going to deal with. I should just add in one point about intellectual property. So Singapore yeah. has a free trade agreement with the US and actually we follow very similar patent practices with the US market. Part of that is also to do with intellectual property, which most international companies actually leverage on using Singapore's legal system, but not local companies. With the intellectual property law, you know it's going to get followed and you know it's going to get enforced. Not to bring it back to China again, but apparently they are cutting down on hackers every day, but recent reports say they're not. They might say they are, but they're not. So Singapore has the advantage of we have this intellectual property law and we will enforce it. That gives people more security when they want to invest in a company. I guess it's interesting to see that you talk about made in China and made in Germany. Because there is this... I always, <laughs> I always have this problem with this because I think it's more like assembled in China. Because, because the world is global these days, right? We, we talk about outsourcing. What Foxconn getting people to assemble the iPhone. Yes, it's assembled yeah. in China, but the parts are all coming from Japan, Taiwan... 
the food yeah. parts of the world. Yes, it's made in China because the, the essential, even Apple started to say something like designed in California and made in China. Yeah, yeah. That's the Apple, the Apple logo, right? I mean, the Apple slogan. I thought it was funny that we talk about made in countries. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting point that you talk about there is the branding element that Singapore could bring to India companies. But I guess the taxation laws will take some time to reinforce. So I think Singapore will still have a little bit of advantage as a financial hub because it's consistent that capital gains tax is zero. Yeah. Everybody yeah. just loves that and it hasn't changed for the well, longest and, time. And, and apparently, I don't, I'm not an Indian expert, but just reading around, apparently they're about to go through a rough year in terms of investments. So right when Modi does that, it sounds like India is not super optimistic about the amount of money that's going to go into startups. Yeah, it's interesting because the India tax law is actually about 40%. Whoa. So if you have incorporated in India, that's the cost you need to have for a flip card. So yep. they're actually saving a lot of money. We talk a lot about Singapore. Yes, it's home ground for me and you, but yeah. we want to get around the other parts of Southeast Asia. Cool. So Malaysia is getting interesting. The biggest is the departure of Cheryl Yeo, who I interviewed on this podcast from Magic. She's basically running a government agency that actually deals with promoting entrepreneurship and she set up a lot of initiatives. Actually, she even got 500 startups to set up fund. For a while as a Singaporean watching Malaysia, I thought that they may become good competition for us. And now yes. it's gone again. My first question, do you think that what the Malaysian government's, the good work that she has done in terms of the government initiatives will be gone and basically derail them from being a startup hub against Singapore? My bosses told me a few times that Malaysian ecosystem is not just magic. It's not just the government. They have quite a bit of unicorns coming out of Malaysia. Like Grab Taxi is the most famous. I don't think Service Hero is a unicorn, but it's doing pretty well. They also, a ton of companies exit via stock exchanges. That seems to be a Malaysian trend for some reason. Malaysia has a Bumiputera policy, which is basically to promote the ethnic Malays, which are definitely an underrepresented group. But it's it's a pretty heavy-handed way of promoting. It's kind of like affirmative action in the U.S., which I guess is kind of ironic. <laughs> it's kind of like affirmative action in the U.S. But when it comes to startups, I don't think it's a good way of approaching it. I, I think founders especially aren't very common. I don't think I would make a very good founder. I don't think a lot of people would make a very good founder. And I don't think you can restrict it based on someone's ethnicity. I think a good founder could come from anywhere. A thing about Malaysia, which is just my personal perception, is they actually have a pretty good representation of women, or at least women in power, or at least women that are doing well in the startup scene. Grab Taxi co-founder Hoyling Tan's a good example. I just reported a story of a new company that kind of a health lifestyle company that they're top leadership are all women. Cheryl Yeo is a woman. So you have the point of booming Putra policy, setting some difficult limitations on the Malaysian ecosystem. But I think genuinely in terms of the businesses, they do thrive. If I were to think about some of the best businesses actually came out from Malaysia, for example, Air Asia, the budget airline. Yes. There is also MOL, which is actually an online payments company. And a lot of people may not know they're actually IPO and NASDAQ, but they did something that was really exceptional was that they bought Friendster and flip it and made five times the profit when they sold to Facebook, the IP of Friendster. That's probably one company that you need to look at. And I think that there was some reports about six out of eight major unicorns at some point before this startup boom in Indonesia, the unicorns were all coming from Malaysia. I guess it's interesting that with or without magic, they would have actually still do well. Yeah, and... Magic magic might do better. Who knows? We can't call the death knell of magic because they're mm -hmm. changing leadership. I don't think that's fair. Cyber Jaya's 
uh, quite an interesting little startup hub. It's it's nice. I do have to say that Cheryl did a very good job in terms of trying to bridge Malaysia with the Silicon Valley, taking some of the models that actually what Singapore has been doing. I think that the problem is not seeing it through. I, I guess the way I always like to say it is that it's not Singapore being very good. It's just that everybody screws up yeah, faster okay. than us. So got to move on. Indonesia. So Indonesia is interesting because it has about 200 over a million population. It's probably constitute the largest of the whole of Southeast Asia with the 272 million population. And therefore, the market size is extremely large. It's in the brick status when we talk about the brick nations. Something that has been ongoing in Indonesia, I mean, there is a big startup scene. If you talk to my friend Rama from Daily Social, he will tell you, you know, it's getting exciting every day. Now, we have traditional conglomerates are now entering into the startup ecosystem, like the Lippo Group, for example, where they set up companies like Matahari Mall, they have a Ventura Capital. Do you see that actually is beginning to have more traditional conglomerates exerting influence into the ecosystem? They're definitely going into the ecosystem. And there's this new e-commerce roadmap that came out about a month ago. So That'll be interesting to see how that affects and how a company like Matahari might utilize the e-commerce roadmap. And if they do have the advantage, obviously, of being able to throw a ton of money at a couple guys in a room who might just love it. Influence is a two-way street, right? So part of the reason people get into startups is to avoid, is because they want to be an entrepreneur and they want to have everything that comes with being an entrepreneur. And I don't think it's unreasonable for startups go it alone, take a smaller fund. Some of the best companies that come out of Southeast Asia are bootstrapped because it's less restrictive. So I'm just projecting, but I guess their approach would be a more corporate sort of investment style. And sure, money is money. Honestly, sometimes it doesn't matter where it comes from. If you're desperate, you'll take money. But I don't think it's unreasonable for startups to go it alone, go to a smaller fund, maybe look for an investor who has built a company and sold a company or investors with a history of being in startups because you know that sort of mentorship is going to guide a startup the way a startup needs to be guided and within the culture that they understand. You wonder sometimes if if a Matahari is going to be a bit like a, a bull in a china shop. Sure, they have a ton of money, but they also might be projecting their culture onto a startup scene that I don't know if they really want it or if it would be best for it. And they might just say, look, I'll take a million dollars from this smaller VC because he'll help me grow in the way that they know because they've been working in startups for 15 years and they they know how it works. I thought it would be interesting to actually also talk a little bit about the operating model of Matahari Mall because I was talking to Rama previously in a previous episode and he pointed out that the way how the Lippo Group set up Matahari Mall was to make it more entrepreneur. So they hired a lot of entrepreneurs to run it. At the same time, they try not to influence too much on it with their corporate culture. So I don't know whether that experiment works, but I think that part of it was that they also want to get into the e-commerce market and probably taking on uh, Lazada, which is probably Rocket Internet, is yeah. probably where they, they are actually looking at the money. I mean, e-commerce at a higher level is mainly about what's your cost per user acquisition and who actually owns the logistics play, I mean, regionally. I mean, if I'm not wrong, 60% of the e-commerce money in Indonesia is now coming from the second tier cities. And it's only 40% in Jakarta. But do you ever wonder about the e-commerce and if they're pushing that a little too hard? They're really pushing this e-commerce, e-commerce, e-commerce. And yeah, there's a great opportunity in Indonesia and it's a huge market. But who knows in five years if e-commerce is still what's, what's new and what's hot and if, it's, if that's the best way of going about it. Or if it's just a 
like I said, a bull in a china stop who might not be as nimble as a, as a smaller VC who can see what e-commerce is today seven years ago and hit a company that way. Yeah, but I think that e-commerce is where most money is attracted, but there are also other pockets, right? I mean, you saw recently Gojek raise a very big round, and I think they are probably now in unicorn status already in Indonesia, which is mainly to do with transportation. I mean, on-demand service is hot too. I mean, Indonesia almost shut down Gojek before they realized what they were doing. Well, they, t- they turned back the decision, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Then you, have, then you have very interesting startups that are much more traditional, like e-fishery. Yeah, e-fishery is cool. Yes, they are actually doing something really solving a emerging market problem in the fishing business by using technology. So I think when you look at, say, Indonesia, it's a, the ecosystem is a little bit more complex yeah, and it's culturally, Indonesia is the big giant in Southeast Asia that everyone wants to conquer and come up and compete with India and China, but it just hasn't quite happened yet, I guess. I mean, if they had got their, the government right easily, Singapore, it would may just end up becoming like Hong Kong, becoming more and more irrelevant to that big market. But thankfully, because I think based on Singapore's advantage, so Indonesia has only the market size and yeah. the strength of that market itself. Which also brings me to the next point, right? We've seen recently Singapore VCs have all moved to Indonesia for the first time, right? Monk's Hill. <laughs> Do you think that they will be competitive against the big fund? I think word on the street, I think Monk's Hill is somewhere around, they've raised about 50 to 80 million for a Series A fund, but I think it's across the whole Southeast Asia. Yeah, right. That kind of goes back to the previous point of, I don't I don't know if Monk Hill needs to compete with Ventura. It's just, if I was a startup, I would 100% take $1 million over $10 million from from Ventura, mostly because Ping started Match, which is just, I mean, it's one of the most important startups in the U.S. So having him on board means quite a bit. And investment money isn't the end, right? It's it's the means to get to the end. So a million dollars plus having someone like him leading your company and mentoring it might mean quite a bit more from than $10 million. Even if they do say they're going to take their hands off the company, they might not have quite the experience that someone like Peng has. I met Paul Bragiel, who's IO Ventures. I met him in Taiwan, and he was one of the very, very first inventors, ver- first investors into Uber. So, like, can someone like him compete with these big companies? No, not really. But I also don't know if that's really what he wants to do. He doesn't care. He likes to find cool companies, and he made a lot of money when he found Uber. So the other interesting thing is there's also the Japanese VCs in that market too, right? I mean, you have GRI, you have DNA. There is a very interesting relationship between Japan and Indonesia. I know Patara Ito, who runs East Ventures, for example. Yeah, yeah East Ventures also, just made another one earlier this week. Which company was that? Medico. It's a healthcare SaaS system. Like what we talk about just now, right? That there is yeah. other problems that people are solving. And it's not necessarily conform to the on-demand mobile apps market, nor the e-commerce market. I think those are just more the ones that are hyped up because the financing is actually very large. And the government's actively putting policy to help e-commerce take off. The other things that actually happen in the Indonesia ecosystem is still payment infrastructure. I mean, this is a very common problem across Southeast Asia ecosystems, right? That you actually have this situation that there is no unified payment system Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of cross-border commerce issues on that. On the whole, I guess these would be things that we would need to watch out for at least in the next couple of months to years in terms of that. With the big three of the ecosystems, do you have any thoughts, say, on, say, Thailand or Philippines? 
given that they're also Southeast Asia as well, I guess there's also Vietnam. I think we didn't talk about and there's a lot of play now going into Myanmar as well. Yeah, I mean, Vietnam right now seems to be the sexiest of the up-and-coming Southeast Asia scenes. I think that's just because they have Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. So they have two kind of central hubs and they're on the north and south. And they also have some old unicorns from the uh, 2000s, from the first tech boom. In general, when you talk to people around the industry, they, they're kind of excited about Vietnam and where it's going to go. That was at least what was happening in the autumn. I haven't looked into it in a month or two, but I think it's still going well. Thailand has Bangkok, which is nice, but Thailand is also hurt by some low English skills. Thailand's in an interesting population size where they need to a general startup can try and take over Thailand and probably be okay. But if they really want to become a unicorn, they're going to have to expand out. And their English rate is one of the lower ones in the region. So startups, they actually complain about UX design too, which is interesting, but they complain about finding developers and hiring people that can market the company outside of Thailand. I mean, Bangkok's a developed city with lots of interesting things. People like to live there. It's an attractive place to run a company. There's also like Arden Capital and then there are like companies that are like e-commerce that has actually emerged from Thailand as well. Yeah, e-commerce is an interesting company. They're a marketing startup that's almost not a startup anymore. Yeah. Okay, probably I've, there were some some general thoughts. And I think pre this conversation, you brought up this point to me and said that you had this view that immigrants make better startup <laughs> founders against locals. Yeah. So I, I'll let you start first. I guess I accidentally made the point on better founders. I don't think I know. I don't think I think they're better, but I think they're valuable. Um, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual. And Singaporean can become a good founder too. But the one advantage that immigrants have is knowing their home country, seeing what works in their country and seeing if it'll work here. And they can spot problems in their new country that uh, a local might take for granted. There's kind of a saying in, in uh, journalism is the best time to write a story is six to nine months after you land because you have enough context with the culture to not sound like a tourist, but you still are noticing things that locals take for granted. And going back to that Our Health Mate story, so they, they actually, what they do is they send remittance money back to India, but they make sure that it only goes to healthcare because Indian expats have a problem where they send remittance back home to their father who's 65 years old and needs to get his heart checked. But then they, the family uses that for, you know, a nephew's birthday or for shoes or, I mean, it's fine. They're sending him or for shoes or something like that. And so that's a Singaporean company. They are very much a Singaporean homegrown country, but they're solving a problem that I don't know if a local would necessarily see because they're not sending remittance home money back to their family. Their family's here. And I think that is an advantage that immigrants have. I have another point, but I'd love to hear your, your, your ideas. I think that the problem with whether immigrants and start, there are better, better startup founders than locals is something that is made up by media. For me, it's more, I think the answer is actually 50 50. They're just, they're just as many good immigrant startup founders as good as locals. And I think what is really happening is that what you're seeing is actually some form of confirmation bias. Like what happens is that you're seeing, oh, because so-and-so is an expat, that's why he, he builds this cool company. But that's also partially because maybe this, there's a Singaporean founded a very similar company, but because it's not sexy. So, mm. you know, he doesn't get covered. So, I mean, it, it also happens for, if you were to think about other parts of Asia, right? If you go to say Indonesia, some of the very successful companies like Tokopedia, 
they are Indonesian founders. If you go to say China, you know the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, all Chinese founders. Maybe with the exception of China, which was done by a foreign expert, which was acquired by Baidu eventually. So if you were to take this in like a more generic view, I think it's actually fifty-fifty. Yeah, I mean, because Property Guru came to my head as an expat founder that is taking off in Singapore. Correct, but you also see now that that they are also taking competition from local companies at ninety nine dot co, right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's it's not it's not what I'm not I'm not saying that it may be true because I remember when I was living in the UK in Cambridge, where I used to live. One of the famous venture capitalists there, uh, Herman Hauser, who actually also invested in very interesting companies, which one of the companies called Arm which is the basically the billion dollar company in Cambridge. He, he made this point, it is the immigrants that made up the startup ecosystem of Cambridge. So his, his point was basically that it is the immigrants that actually set up all these businesses that made these tech companies work. So I, I think that there is, but I think that there is conf- some form of confirmation bias, but actually the numbers is actually 50-50. There will always be a very good immigrant founder. There's also a very good local founder. I am not trying to, I don't limit this conversation to just Singapore. I'm thinking a a bit more Asia. I guess I would push back a little bit and just say, yeah, if they're local founders, I would hope that they would have a relatively diverse team because I think it just helps you spot problems from a different perspective. And I do think that there are certain issues that immigrants have that motivate them to work hard. Most notably, if they lose their job, they have to go home. That's quite a motivator. I'm not saying locals don't work hard. That's I'm not conf- those two are not mutually those two are separate, but yes, if an immigrant loses his job, he's going to run out of money in about a month or two and they're going to have to go home, so they're going to do a lot to keep that job. And the idea of starting over is not an ideal one. It's a pretty good motivator. If you've moved to Singapore or wherever and if you've lived there for 3 or 4 years, there's people you care about, you're going to, you know, you might even have a a love interest and if you have to leave, that's that's quite a daunting mm-hmm. proposition. I guess in today's world, the world is global. So yep. it doesn't really matter where you live or where you work. From a business perspective or from a coal perspective, I would probably agree with you. But I think there's still an emotional part that is quite a motivator of mm-hmm. just feeling happy somewhere and not leave, not wanting to leave it. I, I guess this is something that we will think about in, in that, I think this is a rather controversial topic. So I thought yeah. it's quite fun yeah. to actually tease oh. it out from, yeah, I agree. from a different perspective. So that comes to my final question. Help my audience. How do they find you? Oh, cool. So I'm on Twitter at Kevin McSpadden. I'm relatively active on Twitter. I have a funny story. Yeah, this guy uh, randomly walked into my apartment and was like, you need to test this out. So I honestly think I'm one of the first people who was ever on Twitter. I was on it early. And then they can email me at kevin at e27.co. That's a good place to find me. So if they have any story about their funding news, yeah, so they'll come to you. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, you, I get a is. ton of emails anyway, so any extra is not going to hurt. I, I want I want to beat this point. So a friend of mine, Yongfo, who is a serial entrepreneur and who loves bootstrapping, always likes to challenge the media. Why can't we talk about someone who bootstraps the company and make 10x the profit? Is it not as sexy as something that is like getting um, raised $10 million with a $1 billion valuation? Yeah, I, I know young folks. I don't know. <laughs> I know who he is. So if, if somebody were to say in the story, you would take it, right? Yeah, although honestly, <laughs> his story is relatively well known. I think maybe he's just frustrated because everyone knows who he is and it's not newsworthy. <laughs> 
Okay, you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And you can also tweet to us at AnalyzeAsia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia, A-S-I-A. So once again, Kevin, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.